Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, five years ago, Knut Berger wrote a piece for Crosscut titled Seattle Process, Does Working Together Make Us Dumber? The headline this year might be Broken Process. Is Seattle becoming ungovernable? In fact, that was the subject of a recent discussion with Seattle City Council member Deborah Juarez and former council president Bruce Harrell. Seattle had been fairly bulldozing along economically when a spring and summer marked by pandemic and demonstrations for police accountability and racial justice hit. Protesters demanded drastic change, others advised caution, and city government became more factious than usual. The effects of the lockdown and calls to defund the police exposed disunity between Mayor Durkin and the city council. As a side note to the local political infighting, in September, Attorney General William Barr declared Seattle, Portland, and New York City anarchist jurisdictions. The path forward for Seattle is unclear. An exodus of highly paid tech workers may change the tax base. The downtown corridor will have to reinvent itself Homelessness is on the rise, and our process is indeed an issue. These were some of the topics taken on in this frank conversation. The Seattle University Institute of Public Service and Town Hall Seattle presented this event on October 29th. Multimedia journalist Joni Balter and Seattle U professor Larry Hubble served as moderators. Please note, this recording contains one word of an adult nature. Seattle University President Steven Sundborg opened the event. As president of Seattle University, let me welcome you and express my gratitude to Town Hall for this partnership with Seattle University's Institute for Public Service on a subject that I'm sure is going to be both interesting and provocative. It's called, Is Seattle Becoming Ungovernable? Is Seattle Becoming Ungovernable? Uh, this is a subject that I hear many people talking about, so it's important for our whole community and it's especially important for our own students at Seattle University and the Institute for Public Service. You know, we here at Seattle University like to call ourselves Seattle's University. Our, uh, so much of our uh, status depends upon the reality and the reputation of Seattle. It attracts our students to Seattle. Uh, this is where they work and they do their internships. The people of Seattle are involved in our university and we are in service to the city and to all of its people. And by location on the south end of Capitol Hill, we're surrounded by hospitals and we're halfway between the juvenile detention center and the east precinct. And so right in the middle of things. So we are as a university and with our Jesuit values, we're in service to Seattle in nursing, in health, in business, in law, in uh, leadership, in criminal justice and public service and education. So we really hope that this conversation will be valuable for all of us so that we can understand our city, so that we can know how we can play a role as citizens in a more full way, so that we can take pride in being of Seattle, and especially that we can learn how to serve those, most of all, who do not have the voice that they need to have. I thank you to Larry Hubble and to Joni Balter for facilitating our conversation 
this evening as they've done so many times over the past years in important conversations like the one we're gonna have this evening. Again, welcome and thank you again to Town Hall for the partnership with Seattle University's Institute for Public Service. Thank you. Hi, my name is David Powers and I'm the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Seattle University. I wanna welcome you to this joint uh, event. Uh, it's a pleasure to be hosting this, uh, hosting another event with Town Hall. We've had a series of connections over the years and, and are happy to be with Town Hall in this event. Uh, this is the conversation series uh, in Seattle University. It's now in its seventh year and we're continuing this year uh, in a virtual uh, situation as so many of our events are nowadays, uh, but we're honored to be doing this with the Town Hall. Um, but this series that we've had of Seattle Universities, the conversation series, has been an opportunity to host guests from our region and beyond who've committed their lives and careers to public service and to addressing key issues facing our country. Um, here in the College of Arts and Sciences at Seattle U, we really work to provide a quality liberal arts education that allows students to think critically about the issues facing our community in the 21st century. Never been a more important time to have students becoming citizens thinking critically about what's going on. An event such as tonight's reminds our students about the ways their voice and their vote have the power to impact the direction of our country. I get the opportunity tonight to introduce our two panelists and our interviewers. So first, allow me to introduce the panelists. We're very honored to have Councilmember Deborah Juarez with us tonight. She's an enrolled member of the Blackfeet Nation. She made history when she was elected to Seattle City Council's District 5 seat in 2015, and again with her re-election in 2019. Councilmember Juarez became the first citizen of an indigenous nation to be elected to the council in the city's 150-year history. She went on to law school at the University of Puget Sound Law School, now Seattle University Law School, and built a 31-year career as a public defender, legal aid lawyer, King County judge, and Native American affairs advisor for two governors, along with being counsel for the Northwest Tribes. I also want to welcome former Seattle City Council President Bruce Harrell. Bruce graduated from the other law school in town, the University of Washington Law School, and has served in a variety of leadership roles representing kids, seniors, union members, nonprofits, affordable housing companies, and working as a senior attorney for technology and telecommunication companies. In 2007, Bruce was uh, elected to the city council, uh, emerging from a field of five candidates, uh, replacing uh, city council member Pete Steinbrecht. In 2011 and 2015, council member Harrell was reelected by the people of Seattle and was selected as president of the city council in 2016. We're very happy to have both of them joining us tonight. Uh, you will hear questions and reflections discussion with the two interviewers. Um, Dr. Larry Hubble is a professor and former director of the Institute of Public Service at Seattle University. Prior to his tenure at Seattle U, Hubble was professor at the University of Wyoming. He's also served as a Fulbright scholar in Lithuania, Sri Lanka, and most recently Macedonia. Prior to his career as an academic, he worked for 10 years in the federal government uh, in the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Finally, let me welcome Joni Balter. Uh, Joni is a multimedia journalist and lecturer who hosts Civic Cocktail, sponsored by Seattle City Club and the Seattle Channel. She's a regular on NPR's KUOW's Week in Review and provides political analysis Friday mornings on KUOW, as well as contributing to Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, she's been with us all the seven years as a professional in residence at the Institute of Public Service here at CLU. It's been a pleasure to have her and what she brings 
to the, to the Institute. She also teaches at the University of Washington's Evans Graduate School of Public Policy and Governance. So I wanna thank you all for coming to this event. I wanna thank in advance our panelists and our interviewers and allow me to hand it off to Larry Hubble who will get things rolling. Thank you and again, welcome. Thank you very much, David. Uh, as he mentioned, this is the seventh year we've been providing these conversations. We do them three times a year. However, this is the first time we're offering it virtually. <laughs> and we really thank Town Hall for providing all the logistical support for this. It's great. Now, let me just uh, issue a disclaimer that we always do in our uh, conversations, and that is the views of the uh, our uh, interviewee interviewees are their views and don't necessarily represent the views of Seattle University. Now, we're breaking this um, into two sessions. First, uh, Joni and I will be asking questions for probably the first 40 minutes or so. And then we will be taking, we have some questions from students uh, from Seattle University. And we're also opening it up to you to ask questions. So please be thinking of questions you might wanna ask. So uh, Joni, could you start off? I'd be delighted to. I want to thank everybody as well for being here tonight. Thanks so much to Councilmember Deborah Warris joining us in busy times, and thanks to Bruce Harrell joining us in equally busy times. Um, okay, so we came up with this catchy title for our event, at least we think it is, but is there something to it? The nation's once most livable city has clearly hit a rough patch. Is it fair to call it ungovernable? So I want to hear from both of you. We'll start with you, Councilmember Deborah Juarez. And hi, Deborah. Well, first of all, um, um, I want to thank uh, Father Sunberg for the great introduction. Um, I want to thank Dean David Powers and Dr. Larry Hubble, now that I got everybody's name correct. Um, and of course, you, Joni, and uh, Bruce, uh, Mayor Harrell. It's good to see you. I miss you. I miss seeing your face on the floor here. Um, so we had had this talk before. Um, Joni and I have had a few talks about this, this issue about whether or not it's governable. So I, I want to phrase it this way for me anyway, that, you know, let's talk about what Seattle, what Seattle is not. Um, Seattle is not silent. Seattle is not submissive. Seattle is not unthinking. Uh, Seattle will not be exploited and Seattle is not obedient. And starting with that frame of mind about who Seattle is, which I think is, you know, is fair to say, can it be governed? Absolutely. Have have we um, have we have we led in the country? Yes, we have. We have passed some of the most progressive, far-reaching laws that have protected people and um, gave given voice to those that didn't have a voice. So, and I want to get back to this other issue about democracy because when we get back to this governability issue, because I don't see governor governing as an a, a issue of, of control. Again, Seattle is this scrappy little town that doesn't know it's a, a big city. And I think we've always been struggling with that tension. And um, I'm going to let uh, Council President Harrell um, speak to that as well before I launch into some of my thoughts because um, Joni posed this question to me last week and I have had a few days to think about it, particularly since I've only been on council um, for going on my fifth year and uh, President Harrell or Councilmember Harrell, Mayor Harrell has served much longer and can give a, a probably a better historical perspective. So yeah, uh, mayor for five days, council president, ten. been there longer. Was it 10? He told me five. I thought it was 10. Anyway, Bruce, help us out of this. 
<laughs> and tell us what you think about this idea. Is Seattle becoming ungovernable? No, it, it's not. We have unprecedented change and issues we are confronted with right now. And if we don't come out of this 2020 with new energy, new creativity, um, new, new thoughts, new implementation strategies, then we've lost a tremendous opportunity. We have, again, challenges, um, unprecedented, and I'll speak more specifically, but when I think about Seattle University, and I want to echo Councilmember Juarez's thanks for the for, for you host and people listening in and the leadership at Seattle University. Um, the anger that you see out there, either from the far left or the far right, or even in the middle, I, I understand it. Um, the rules of society that we're living in, where a company like Amazon, as an example, and I don't bash Amazon, I just, I look at data. A company where you see revenues of such an enormous entity to the tune of 230 billion, as an example, and you see wealth at levels that are unimaginable in the same city where you see this kind of poverty and homelessness, the contradictions in our society, where we elect as a country a misogynist, I think, in my personal opinion, a person that um, dog whistles supremacy, that I think that leadership matters. And the aftershocks of that kind of leadership resonates here on the local level. So we have a lot of issues we're grappling with, racial unrest, healthcare, COVID-19. And we are, yes, struggling, but I think out of it, uh, there will be some ideas to evolve and some new leaders to emerge. And we're going to be fine. And we're going to be fine. And we're going to be a great city. So I, I don't say it's ungovernable. I say we have an unprecedented opportunity. And I've always been an optimist and will remain an optimist. But I still think we have some great things in store for this city. Uh, I'd like to ask this to Bruce. Uh, does this idea of a governability actually play into the Republican narrative about Seattle? Can you clarify the, the point you're making? Uh, the issue that we're bringing up, this issue of uh, ungovernability, because you know Trump has referred to Seattle as an anarchic city. Does, so, does, does this idea actually play into the Republican narrative? So let's look at what he's referring to. He mentions every chance he gets Antifa. Well, the term Antifa has been around since World War II. It took on a new meaning in 2017, coincidentally, when he took office. And uh, the what I'll consider the far left uh, that stands for, quite frankly, many of the things that I stand for. Uh, I don't stand for property destruction and throwing bricks through windows and that kind of property destruction. But I do stand against racism and, and these kinds of things as uh, the Antifa uh, advocates would suggest. And so this narrative that we're ungovernable, I think, weakens the justified anger that many of our youth have. Uh, having uh, kids in graduate school right now and trying to keep my uh, old ears close to the ground in coffee shops or wherever I can socially distance these days, um, I, I get the fact that this, this fear uh, that happens, whether it's because in the year 2040, it may be a majority minority company, they're changing demographics, the immigrants are taking over all of this fear that I believe leadership matters. And I just think that the kind of 
nonsense we get from the top that spews trickles down. And I think many cities, not just Seattle, but many cities are now fueled with anger on the far left and far right. And I don't think Seattle is any different. Now, I, I suppose somewhere in this program, we're going to talk very specifically about the current city council and the mayor's administration and how Chop and Chaz was handled and the things we're grappling with. And I'm ready. I'm I'm ready to talk about those things. But I will tell you, Seattle's no different. I do well, no different in the sense that the the President Trump loves to pl play into this narrative that we're all anarchists and we're just burning down buildings. That is not what we do. I've participated in many peaceful protests. When George Floyd was murdered. When he was murdered, my family and I, certainly we marched and we weren't destroying property, but we wanted the whole world to know what we felt. And for your viewing audience who may not know my personal background, I'm of mixed heritage. My father's an African-American and my mother was a Japanese-American and Garfield High School graduates, if there's any Garfield Bulldogs in the house. Parents of Garfields, absolutely. All right. There you go. <laughs> so, and they met at Garfield and, and that was a good day when they met because if they hadn't met, I wouldn't be being able to spouse some opinions today. Now, having said that, we, um, we are not anarchists as he would portray us to be. We express our opinions as the council member was stated, and I love that energy about Seattle. I absolutely love that energy. We, we, I was asked the other day about the history of slavery or Jim Crow in Seattle, and I had to give a different description of what actually happened in Seattle when I was at a young kid and, and the different laws we had about where you couldn't go at certain times of the night. But we don't have that nasty history that comes from Alabama and Texas and some of these places down south. But we have our own unique history of racism, unfairness, uh, gender discrimination, et cetera. But Seattle is an awesome place. And I'm not, no one's going to run me out of the city. And I would, I would suggest these future leaders of Seattle University realize the beauty we have here in Seattle. Again, our answers are right there in the audience at Seattle University. I know we have over 7,000 students there that are the the, the, uh, the Red Hawks. And so the answer lies in our younger generation. But we, I think those with a little gray hair, I think we have to understand that that anger out there in many times is very justified because they see the contradictions in our society without any answers. I, you know, I, I don't Amazon bash. I don't talk about Jeff Bezos's incredible wealth and hate him. I just ask how a man is worth, I don't know how many billions he's worth, two, uh, 178 billion, I think is the last number, how a man that are worth 178 billion can live in the same city where people are sleeping homeless every single night. When I look at, and I'll close with this part on this point, when you look at the revenues of Amazon, I use the number of 230 billion, that's 20 billion a month. That's 4.5 billion a week. The whole city of Seattle's revenues are about 2.8 billion per year. So you look at a company like Amazon that's being able to extract finite resources, money in, in a week, more than the city of Seattle, the, the young generation sees these contradictions and they're saying, maybe this is sort of stacked the wrong way. So I get their anger and I think we need to build upon that and use it more constructively. And I don't think we're doing that in terms of the constructive build out. And that's what Trump runs his mouth about. Thank you. Uh, Council Member Juarez, uh, Trump has said that he would like to cut federal programs in uh, selected cities, including Seattle. Do you think he has the authority to do that? Well, it's funny you ask, because we just got the 50-page brief that was filed. Um, I just start reading it. 
And uh, no, he doesn't have the authority. Um, the brief was filed um, New York, Portland, and Seattle last Thursday. And legally, the attorney general, there's nothing in law that you can deem something anarchist and take away federal money. It's not found in common law, regular law, no statutory authority. The AG does not have jurisdiction. The AG does not have authority. It violates the Constitution. I mean, I could go on and on and on, and I'm only on page, like, 19. No, this is this is holy. This is the gaslighting that's happening in this country. Is it more marketing, would you say? Is it more like a marketing thing? Or is it a real it's thing? Hateful and quite frankly, just bullshit. Okay, let's just call it what it is. I'm just going to say it. And lawyers out there, I start reading it and I, I start just laughing at the stuff that they were saying, the, the anarchist city and you know the streets are running to muck and okay, fine. But that isn't a cause of action for the federal government to take money away from a city. And our mayor was right when she said it has no basis in law, and it doesn't. But that is what we have seen with the gaslighting with this administration and telling us, you know, what's black, what's white, what's up, what's down. And unfortunately, some people believe it. So, you know, I want to go back to something Bruce said um, when he talked about our city. One of the things that has troubled me, and I know it troubled uh Bruce, when he was our council president, is this city's demand not to be exploited. This city's demand that we tax those that have more because of the wealth gap. And there's nothing wrong with that type of anger. And I've had these discussions before, but it has to translate into action. It has to translate into moving forward. And this is something uh, council president Harold and I had talked We've had exchanges about being people of color, being about the same age, coming up the ranks, you know, getting ourselves through college, getting ourselves through law school, not being part of this pipeline to success, you know, really having to make our way in the room without people saying we're, we're there only because of affirmative action, is that there's this culture out there, this, um, this privilege of impatience by people who are not of color who want it now whose people did not die for this country, were not killed for this country, were not enslaved in this country, that didn't have genocide committed on them. And you heard President Obama say this. Those are the people, people like me and Bruce and our family, who are still here and still fight for the principles in our United States Constitution, even though we weren't included in it till later. Well, so I just want to say this. We understand, and I know we both do, either we understand at a personal level, a professional level, and certainly as an elected level, what our role is for this city to move it forward. Because right now, we're in the midst of transformational change. Everybody agrees that this has been going on too long. Black Lives Matter. This cannot go on. The next step is, as an elected for me now, is how do we build that consensus? How do we get there without the us and them? You're with me. You're against me. You know, how do we distinguish between the First Amendment right and then when it slides into violence? So I'll, I'll leave it at that. because well, that, that sort of feeds rather perfectly into the question that I want to ask next, and it has to do all these all these things are going on at the same time absolutely true and some of the frustration and much of the frustration is totally understandable but we also have to look at our city government and you know seattle was this city that worked it always was that we threw in a little process and then we solved our challenges and maybe we'll do that again but right now 
to many people, it seems overrun with ideology, especially in our government. And so I'll ask you, you this, Bruce Harrell, how do we get beyond some of the ideology that is plaguing our governments, our local governments? Well, we, I'll, I'll talk about the city council. Well, I'll talk about the mayoral position as well. So we're being led by the people that the city decided to elect. And that's an obvious statement, but um, I, I would suggest that if you really look at our history, and I'll go back to uh, uh, Mayor Nichols, who was a two-term president from 2002 to 2010, that during his, he was a two-term president and he didn't make it past primary for a third term, as you recall. I know a lot of these Two students terms. are probably seven years old when this occurred, so this is ancient history, <laughs> that uh, I was on the council during his last term. And there was friction then that when he ran for reelection, not one city council member endorsed him. In fact, one council member ran against him. And we had a lot of attention there. We had a stronger economy and some other positive things. We didn't have the George Floyd situations, but we still had police misconduct and those types of things. But there was friction there. It just didn't, it didn't break. We were still able to function on a lot higher. Go ahead, Joan. I know you want to say well, something. To be clear, we're not talking about council members running against each other or having friction. We're talking about, I believe, the whole thinking on this is that ideology is so overwhelming at the moment, or so it seems. Just asking. Well, I, so again, the people that are, we have, okay. I guess we have to be very specific. So let's talk about, I'll, I'll take an example. Uh, should we let people who are experiencing homelessness live in parks? Okay. Yeah, I'm glad should we? Some people think that that's public land and they have nowhere to go. If they had choices, they wouldn't be homeless. And that if there's not available shelter, they choose not to live in shelter. That's fair game for them to live in parks if they're not bothering anyone and they should be able to to. to to live there. Others would take the view, which I particularly share, and that is that parks are paid for by certain tax dollars that they are described to be a certain kind of public place for a different purpose. And while I want every homeless person housed and in, uh, in good and warm and fed, that parks in my mind are not to be used for that purpose. Now, what happens now are that people who perhaps disagree with my position are routinely getting elected to office and they are not bashful about their points. So perhaps my point might be out of sync with those that are running and, and successfully getting elected to office. I could give you five or six, what I call wedge issues, either you're for it or you're against it, right? And so, and, and, the, and the dynamic, Joni, I was describing is that the friction between the mayor and the council, because I will tell you under Mike McGinn, uh, Mayor McGinn, he spent four years battling the council on on the tunnel, right? I mean, that was a wasted four years. He was at a point to where department heads weren't even allowed to speak to the council members directly. That was, I, I served in function. There was dysfunction, unprecedented dysfunction under the McGinn administration, which I think was a squandered four years. And so in terms of him being uh, mayor. So now that's not to say he didn't stand for some environmental sustainability visions and some other work that was done, but so the friction is not new. Yeah, friction, friction is not new. It's about the ideology. But, yeah. but uh, Councilmember Juarez, how do you feel about um, allowing the homeless to be uh, living in the parks? 
Well, let me let me go back. I gotta I gotta call you out on something, Joni. You go for it. You 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 prefaced your question. You made a statement, and this is why it's important that you have people of color and people on city council that look like you, think like you, come from a different background. You made kind of a comment, please, and I'm not trying to be a gotcha moment here. That oh. that somehow Seattle was plugging along and things are all right, and then George Floyd died, or things are all right. Things have never been all right in this country for people like me and Bruce. That's fair. Okay, and so what you're seeing now is that people can't turn their gaze away from racism, from people being killed based on their color of their skin, the wealth gap, because this pandemic fueled recession, peeled all of that back and showed us all the inequities across the board. So why thank you white people for saying I'm accepting my white privilege and blah, 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 blah. I'm gonna be your ally. You know, I'm gonna make indigenous territorial acknowledgements because I'm on Duwamish land. Thank you very much. You know what I want you to do? If you really want to be an ally is to not just recognize your privilege or talk about being an ally and being an ally isn't wearing your Black Lives Matter t-shirt and marching around the block or putting the sign in your yard. It's actually going out there and helping us, this country, this city, dismantle the institutions that are racist, whether it's housing, banking, education, healthcare, getting in there and recognizing that and changing that without thinking that the discussion of race is about you, because it's not. It is about recognizing our past, as difficult and ugly as it is, genocide, people being enslaved. We talked about this before. This country was built by slaves and immigrants. Recognizing that, giving us our due and moving forward instead of branding people who are more vocal about it than probably Bruce and I are as you know, crazy socialists or way to the left. A lot of what they say is the truth. Where we differ, for me, is how we get there. So that's, that's a good distinction, I think. The it's like I'm 61. I helped take over Fort Lawton that is now Daybreak Star. I was on the banks of the Puyallup and Nisqually River. I took over Cascada, which is now where the Puyallup Casino sits. I get that. But at some point, as I was telling our friend over at Converge, um, that at some point, anger's a great fuel, but then there's a tipping point where it turns into action. When you stay in that anger zone where everything is us and them, you're with me, you're against me, you're against black lives, you're anti-black, you know, when you start getting into the otherisms, then that's where you start losing me because that, that's not helpful. I did not get where I'm at in life taking that attitude. That's why I'm sitting here today. That's why I was the first Native American King County Superior Court judge. That's why I worked for two governors. That's how I got on Wall Street. And that's how I ended up being a partner in the law firm. Not because of you know leading with my race and my gender, but because I had to overlook and work through that and make sure that the people around me understood that. Can I, can I butt in for a sec? Thank, thank you for that, Casimiris. I do. I miss your passion and fire. I got to tell you, I got a taste of it, <laughs> I, and, and I appreciate it because I have now a time to respond to one of the answers. I think either Dr. Hubble or Joni told about the ideology. It, it's not the ideology, in my opinion, that's the problem. It's oh. these specific actions. The ideology is fine. I I don't like misogynists or racists or whatever else, whatever other isms out there. 
but this the action. I don't like homes being, um, you know, people invading people's homes to protest. I don't like bricks through windows. I don't like a lot of the action. I don't the the chop Chaz experience as an example. I never understood what the end game was. If we are angry as we should be at the eight minutes and forty six seconds, George Floyd was murdered. If every person, if that was one vivid example, and for people like Councilman Ware said, we were angry for that. But that there was something about that incident that woke up this whole country, and that's what we were experiencing. They just now see that we saw it with. With, with 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 Sandra Bland and with with I mean I could I could go down the list um, uh, Brianna Taylor uh, uh, Michael Brown Eric Garner I mean, we go down the list and they're just now getting angry but we'll take what we could get and that yeah. anger fueled people that were on the bench and John T because we were yeah. in his funeral yeah. we were yeah. in his funeral together Bruce you, you know I'll tell you that the situation and again when you look at it, I think John T Williams occurred in Think about 2000 and it was, I think most ago, right? 2010. So a lot of the audience members would have been what, seven or eight years old, nine years old. But this is a situation just to remind folks that it was, was killed in 2010 in August, as I recall, by an officer. He was a wood carver. He was hard of hearing. And the officer in, in a matter of five or six seconds was, was gunned down. And we could even talk about a few years ago, what happened to Charlene Lyles right here in Seattle, a woman that was gunned down. And so when we see this stuff, it, it resonates. I, I, not to digress, but I don't know if there's any This Is Us fans out there that watch watches this show, but they had the season opening Tuesday that I happened to watch. And they had a scene in there where Randall, as you may recall, who's the African-American triplet born in a white family, his sister Kate loves him dearly. And he was saying that he just he he was sad because Kate loved him, and I, people that don't follow the show don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Raining. I know you're talking about anger, this anger that now people are feeling that we've been feeling this all along. And so so it's not the ideology that I think is a problem. It's the specific actions that are people taking and justifying it by the ideology. That, that's, I think, what the problem is. Can I, and I want to add on to that because this is a point where I can, I feel I can be really vulnerable and honest and candid speaking to um, Reverend Walden and some other folks. Um, you know, there are a couple of people that I had to make a few phone calls and say, you know, you don't, you don't get to use John T. Williams in your speeches. You don't get to use these people that have died so you could march around in your Black Lives Matter t-shirt. Because I knew John. I knew his brother. I know his brother. Bruce and I were at his funeral. And, you know, when it comes right down to it, I'm offended that people use their deaths to justify their pat on the back that now they're being allies and recognizing their white privilege and marching around. In fact, I'm annoyed by it. You can probably tell by the tone of my voice. And getting back to what Bruce was saying, things have not been okay. And it is an emotional topic, but setting that aside, this is why when as an elected, you know, getting back to putting my elected hat on, when this is my job is, is to build that, that consensus. And, and I wanted to, to tag this on earlier and I'll just say it now while it's still in my mind. And I've said this to my staff as well, you know, that democracy is messy. Democracy can be as violent 
as it can be peaceful. And democracy requires consensus. And democracy is always unfinished. It's like a garden. It always has to be tended to. And we're seeing it on the federal level. Some of us have been in that democracy garden a long time. We didn't just wake up in the last three or four years and learned what a microaggression was. And so you can see some of my annoyance when people are now showing up and screaming at people like Bruce and I, you know, that, that we're sellouts. You know, I'm either, yeah, I'm either, you know. Wait, how are you a sellout? Well, well, I could go on and on, but I'm just gonna make a, a quick- I want Larry to ask his next question, but yeah, go ahead. I, so, I don't want to go So me and Bruce would go through as, as elected people of color, Bruce can speak more for himself than me, but you know, just being who I am and not just in this job, I'm either by some publications and some media outlets, I'm a, you know, I'm an Amazon corporate whore or by some media outlets, you know, I'm a raging socialist, crazy lefty. That's only here for identity politics. Well, let's get to some of that through. I know, I, I know what Larry's next questions are. So I'd like to maybe move. Let's hear what he has to say. Yeah. Let's uh, if I could ask first uh, you council member Juarez, Justifiably, the city council has been spending a lot of time on police matters, but uh, seemingly not paid as much attention to the economic problems facing Seattle. I wonder how the city council is going to confront that in the upcoming budget. I'm not sure I understand your question. Do you mean, do you mean downtown? Larry, are you referring to yeah. how we're going to restore downtown? Something economic like problems uh, facing downtown. Is the, is the city council going to try to address the financial problems that the economic problems that the city of Seattle is facing? Well, let, let's be clear. First of all, things are never going to be the way they were ever. I don't, I think again, going back to this pandemic, you know, um, fueled recession, we are never going to have the downtown that we had a year ago. Um, and yes, Seattle Government, again, this is my position about government. Government doesn't fix everything. Government should be in partnership with the private sector to fix things. Um, but if you're asking me whether or not Seattle City Council, us nine members have a plan to make downtown better again, no, we don't. But we do have a plan, hopefully, that um, we want jobs to come back to the city. We want be able to um, open the hotels and the restaurants and take care of our small businesses and those loans to make it better again. But a lot of that is going to fall to um, what happens in the next six months with this pandemic, the election, and what happens with our economy. And I think asking that question is really putting too much on the shoulders of nine people. Because again, and I have to say this, and, and this is the trifecta. There's no city, there is no governor, there is no mayor, there's nobody in this country that isn't getting their ass kicked over the, the trifecta that's going on now. Nobody is doing a good job right now because we can't, we just can't. And if you're in a blue state and you have a president that's making it clear that even if you have wildfires burning, they don't care because you're in a blue state and we're not gonna help you. So I, I can't give you anything more hopeful than that. Except that we're not going to give up trying. Bruce, would you like to address that issue? Yeah, I would say that um, retail, as we know it, 
is irreparably damaged because of e-commerce. That if you look at even pre-COVID, that many of these large stores were struggling before COVID hit. And I think that there's irreparable damage to downtown in terms of some of the economic um, opportunities there for certain kinds of stores. I think the down, and I was actually shocked when I was driving there a few weeks ago, and I, I never have never seen some plywood up on, on on buildings before in my life. And again, I was born in this city about 35 years ago. <laughs> um, and so I don't think it's going to come back in that same way. However, we have to see where there's going to be opportunity and whether this will be educational institutions, uh, high tech, whether maritime opportunities expand, there will be more opportunities and the downtown will once again be a, a, a governed place and a civil place and a thriving place, but it will not look the same because quite frankly, again, when you look at e-commerce, you look at how Amazon has changed the world, um, the, a lot of these stores will not be able to compete. So I think we talk about reimagining a police department. I think what should follow that is reimagining a Seattle downtown core. And there are a lot of people at higher pay, pay grades, whether they're chambers of commerce or planning commissions or uh, other types of community roundtables having these discussions. I anticipate in five years, we're gonna have a thriving downtown. It's gonna, we're gonna need good public safety, of course. Good, good infrastructure, good bu metro bus service, but I think it's going to be thriving. It's just going to look differently. Joni, I think you have a question on Amazon. Oh yeah, well, since we keep touching on Amazon, let's let's ask about that. So, it's fair to say at the moment, Amazon and the city government are they're not getting along that well. Uh, <laughs> is an understatement. And so Amazon, you know, they've moved thousands of jobs. They probably were out of capacity here. It's fair to say that as well, but they've moved thousands of jobs to the East side. Uh, should the city be taking steps? I know this won't be a popular question, but I'll ask it anyway. Should the, be, the city be taking steps to get along with a better than it does right now with its largest private employer? Who wants to go first? Well, I, I can go first. I don't. Okay, let's go back to taking steps to get along better with. Um, let me. Yeah, let me like having meetings with them. And oh, I know what you mean. Oh, we do meet with them. Trust me, I've been meeting with them since the day I got elected, and not just here, but in Washington D.C. And that's a whole another show. Um, I will just say this, and and then I'll I'll I, I want to put it in context. We know because I read the Puget Sound Business Journal. And we know that we have now 25,000 new jobs that are going to go to Bellevue. Um, we know, because I sit on Sound Transit, that light rail is going across the lake. And, you know, there's a lot of incentive to live outside of the city of Seattle now that we've passed the, the jumpstart tax. So, um, and we know, whether we like it or not, and I know some of my colleagues have strong feelings about this, we may not like a capitalist society but that's the society we live in. Can we change it? Absolutely. Have, have, have we passed laws to protect workers? Absolutely. $15 minimum wage. Hotel workers. I mean, we could go on and on. Now we just know, uh, same with like Uber and Lyft. And we've done things because this is the labor town, essentially. We have made those inroads to Amazon. And I'm an, I agree with Bruce. I mean, I, at some point when I've met with some of my Amazon friends, and their legal counsel and their lobbyists. I remember asking them one time, how much money does somebody, 
how much money does he need? <laughs> no, I said, I literally said that. And I, I'll, without using the words that I say, because I already cussed once and I'll stop cussing, you know, it is ridiculous a in a jar. that a multi-trillion dollar company can't contribute to a city that made them rich. Thousands of workers made them rich. They use our streets, our schools, our libraries, our transportation system, our housing stock. It wasn't unfair for us to say, you need to give back. So I don't know. I have a feeling it's going to change when there are more elections and there are different people perhaps on Seattle City Council. And if that's the case, that's too bad. I, I'm disappointed, but not surprised about the way Amazon has behaved. Bruce, do you have a take on that? Yes. Um, you know, I, I've been successful in life, I think, and not just as a politician, but in life, because I don't go around trying to make enemies. I, I don't turn them into enemies. I try to find colleagues and um, friends every chance, I, every opportunity I get. And I tell my three children the exact same thing. With Amazon, they make uh, about $640 million in revenue every single day. So yes, directly, yes, we need to work hard to have a good relationship with them. But that doesn't mean we capitulate to their needs. That doesn't mean that they control us. We hold them accountable. Uh, years ago, I had a meeting with Reverend Jesse Jackson on a deal, and he said, well, I'm getting ready to meet with some of the top brass and some of the top companies here. At this point, it was Amazon and, and Microsoft. And he says, what specifically do you want me to ask them? What do you want from them? And I didn't have an answer right away. And I thought about that. I was in, in a group with about uh, 30 people and we had to formulate the answer. And I came up with some answers, but I think what we have to do is we have to have some very specific asks and we have to prove to powers of that magnitude that we have the answers, we have the solutions. And if we don't, you have coders and developers and strategic planners and social media experts, you can help us find the answers as well. So I think the answer lies in the partnership. And again, you talk about ideology, the challenge smart people like Councilmember Juarez has, the challenge is as soon as you start talking about collaborating, you have to get your hit from the far, far left is your quote unquote in bed with Amazon. Most of us try to make smart database decisions based on values of human decency. You're ethical people. You're trying to make the right decisions. And so this notion that someone's a, um, a slave to Amazon or controlled by Amazon is just ridiculous. And so that's where the ideology does get in the way. So to answer your question directly, absolutely. You have to hold Amazon accountable. And again, the younger generation, again, they see these contradictions. When you talk about um, the Walton family worth $150 billion, I think, in the last count. When you see a family controlling that many resources and the data now is, is, is public. So the younger generation, they see these huge contradictions in our society. We, when we grew up, uh, well, all of you are 20 years older than me, but when I watched you grow up, um, you saw some levels of wealth and you always know there were some outliers, but they were still the strong middle-class and sort of this opportunity to navigate through the rules. Right now, you know, for to go to Seattle University, I think on the last count is like sixty, seventy thousand dollars or so. I don't mean to call out the tuition numbers here, but that precludes a lot of people right off the bat. So being able to progress, the rules of um, of engagement have changed, and so 
So yes, we have to hold Amazon accountable, but we don't want to convert them to our enemies. Well, we have many more questions that we're not going to be able to get to because you gave such thoughtful and comprehensive answers. But uh, Joni has, before we get to the student questions and the other questions from the audience, Joni has sort of a wrap-up question for both of you. Well, so we didn't get to a lot of the topics here. We haven't gotten yet to policing and we haven't gotten yes, yet to that letter that, that you signed, uh, Bruce, uh, uh, condemning some of the things that have gone on in this city, some of the threats and some of the slurs against folks who have experienced protests at their house and things like that. Um, so, so we can't get to all of that, but what we do want to say is where do we go from here? How do we, how do we build this city back together much more than we feel today? Where do we go from here to get on the up and up? This, this has been a lot, of, we've had a lot of tension among ourselves. You want to give a shot, Kesmer Morris? I'll give it a shot by saying, I, I think after next Tuesday, I said leadership matters. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that the collective mood in our country hopefully will will take a swing for the better. And and I think that I used to say when we used to deal with some of the annex down at City Hall, as Councilmember Wares remembers, I said, I will never replicate the techniques and the methods of my opponent. In other words, I'm not going to yell at people and call them names and, and call them out of their name. And I think that, again, leadership matters. And I think that the far left, if they duplicate the tactics of the far right, when you have a president telling the Proud Boys to stand by, okay, the repercussions is only going to stir up people on, on all, all sides of the equation. So I think the answer, I think we're going to be on a better trajectory because, again, I think that um, – I think people are tired of this stuff. When you look at what uh, Mayor Durkin has gone through, Councilmember Morris has gone through, these annex that are not coming from often the far right, but from the far left, I think people are tired of that. That is not constructive. And we all lose. We all lose because of that. And there's no end game in that. They're making an opponent or an enemy out of someone that can be an ally. So I just think... The problem uh, is an ally. Yes, but... But again, a lot of the people doing that, they don't even have Councilmember Warris's life experiences. For her to be a judge and a sitting council member doing, doing the things, they don't have a clue as to what her pathway was. And so I think the answer, again, is going to be in this younger generation. I don't think this younger generation is fueled by the level of hate and anger. I think they're looking for smart solutions. I think they want to look at the data. I think that that's, you know, I was a strong proponent of body cameras because what's happening now, I mean, you see what just happened in Philadelphia. And, and, and I do want to get, I hope, one question about, Philadelphia two years ago with um, the the uh, uh, the young man Walter Wallace was his name that was that was shot that the culture in the police department again it hasn't changed since Rodney King in many ways the, you know the Charlena Lyle situation that happened in Sandpoint a couple of years ago is almost identical to the uh, Walter Wallace situation happened in Philadelphia um, I'll get into the specifics of those facts but I was looking today I just in preparation for this I looked back at the Charlena Lyle tape the video, the body cam, and it was, it was shockingly familiar to me with what happened to Walter Wallace, a person that, quote, unquote, had a knife, obviously mentally ill, right? More of a harm to themselves than anyone else, officers retreating and then shooting. So 
this this anger is justified. But I think the younger generation are going to speak out against all this property destruction because that's not solving the problem. That's not solving the problem. Mm-hmm. If I can, Joni, I, I know you, you brought this up and I, I do want to touch on it because I think it's important about what you were saying about what happened this summer, the letter that Council President Harrell signed along with other mayors and people's anger. And I remembered, I went back and looked for it, an article that was in the Atlantic a couple years ago. And I wrote down why I saved it and it was important. And it, I just want to share this because, you know, if you look behind me, I have a poster of Shirley Chisholm when she ran for president in 1972. It's an actual poster. I was on KOW and she has had MS. I have MS and I was on KOW and they asked me who one of my heroes were. The other one is Bernie Whitebear. That's who you see on the other picture. And um, Shirley Chisholm, people were shocked that she went to go see um George Wallace, after he was stabbed, it was called the racist and the, I can't remember the name of the article, the radical and the racist or something like that. But what struck me, this is 1972, this is what she said, it goes exactly to what, what, what Bruce was saying. Let me read this. And they're, they're all shocked. Like, why would you go see a man who represents everything you're not as a black woman? And she said it, her belief that it was important in a democracy to respect contrary opinions without impugning the motive and maligning the character of one's opponents. To view it any other way, Chisholm argued, was to encourage the same sickness in public life that leads to assassinations. So if I can paraphrase that, what I'm saying is to this generation and what I would love to see happen besides the anger is we get back to seeing the humanity in each other, that we give back to seeing and having the empathy. And more importantly, that we give people the grace and the forgiveness. Part of being a leader is, of course, having courage. But part of that courage is admitting that you're wrong, asking for forgiveness, and moving forward. And so what I see when you see these angry people who are calling you names, and this isn't just happened with recently. It, Council member Bruce will remember this. It happened when we did the um, street vacation vote and we got death threats and rape threats because I voted no on a street vacation. We got the same kind of threats. So did Bruce on the homelessness issue. People were putting signs in my yard and leaving stuff on my porch and in my mailbox. And then this thing, I refuse to be, I refuse to use the tactic of the oppressor. I refuse to do that. You know that saying? that famous saying, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Cause that's not lasting change. That's not how I was raised. And when Joni and I had an offline talk about the tribes and certain tribal organizations coming to my defense, when all so this- okay, let's, let's be clear what we're talking about. They came yeah. to your defense because the protests were coming to your house quite a bit. Yeah. And it wasn't until the letter from the former seven, how many former mayors? Seven former mayors there wasn't much comment on this needs to be stopped until you worked with those tribal folks. Well, let me, I'm going to back up and kind of go after your profession. Um, on. Yeah, because this is, this has been, had been going on for a while and a lot of the press, quite frankly, wasn't, they were like fawning over, there's just these nice protesters out there exercising their first amendment. Yes, there were, 
But there was also that fine line of exercising your First Amendment right, being a protester, and then crossing that line to violence, riots, whatever, to crossing that line to personal attacks at people's homes in a safe space. If there's anywhere in the universe where you need to be safe, it's in your home. When you ask me, why do you think the tribes came out? It isn't the tribes in a sense. I don't like it when people talk about tribes as like, you know, tribalism. These are tribal governments. Our people have been here for time immemorial. So we are good governments. And what they recognize, which the rest of the press in this lefty progressive city sometimes gets, is they just call bullshit. You don't treat people like that. You don't do that to people in the name of John T. Williams or George Floyd. You don't harass people. You don't terrorize people. You don't demean them. You don't other them. That's why over 12 tribes and their tribal police departments called me, offered me, and were worried about me because they see the humanity in me. Because in the Indian country, we see each other and we don't do that. And so that's what happened. And this happened back in July. It took how long for the regular press in this city to finally start saying, that's wrong. I don't care how you cut it, that's wrong. I would never ever, and there are many people that I don't care for, I would never round up a hundred people and go to their house at 11 o'clock at night with a bullhorn and call them filthy names. No. Larry wants to- uh, like that. We, we have to get in some questions from our students, but thank you so much for that. I appreciate that. I think we have time for maybe one student question. And then Joni, if you would like to uh, take one from the audience. Okay. No. Uh, this is from Sarah, who's a senior at Seattle University. And it goes to Bruce. Uh, what would you say to someone who's feeling disillusioned about the system? And how can you encourage them to engage and have hope that change is possible? But I would first say that the disillusionment that you're experiencing is the exact same thing that I experienced when I was a young political science major at the University of Washington. The contradictions that one sees in the society, they've almost always been there. I hate to say this publicly, but I'm not afraid to say it, that when I was young, I looked at a lot of the socialist Marxism theory, and I thought capitalism contained the seeds of its destruction and had a lot of ideas about what should have been changed back then. I tell this person that the best thing they can do is to socialize with people who have different opinions, different diverse backgrounds, and be very intentional about broadening your sphere of groups and join group and, and, and create that positive synergy. Because I will tell you that when I had run for office, it was my friends and, and that I, my best friends that I had today, I met most of them in college. The friendships and the bonds you have in college are enormous and in grad school and law school. The, the hope is in that positive love, that synergy. But the disillusionment is—it's that's part of the experience when you really, when you when you when you leave the comfort of your parents' house and some of the protections, um, is what we all experience at some point in our life. And you draw around that positive synergy around people, and join those groups and make some change. Councilmember Juarez, would you like to address that too? I forgot what the question was. I was all listening to Ruth. Here you go. What would you say to someone feeling disillusioned about the system? How can you encourage them to engage and have hope that change is possible? Well, it's probably what I tell my adult children that are 26 and 29. You know, um, yeah, they voted for Bernie. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to make fun of that. What I'm trying to say is that I appreciate that that 
that that age bracket, as Bruce was saying, where you know everything is possible and all of this change can happen, and that is that is still true. I have accepted the fact because I'm 61 and I think Bruce is 10 years older than me. Um, I've accepted the fact, listening to my children and my staff, they're all millennials, that um, it's their world. And if they're not going to be a part of it, and, and, and I know it sounds kind of hokey, there is so much hope and there's so much greatness and there's so much glory and loving this country and this city and looking forward and that they have their whole lives in front of them. I wish I had that it now. I did have it. And I think we have made those changes. I remember those feelings. I remember when Reagan got elected again. I mean, I remember that it was awful. Um, I found it, found it interesting that when Trump was elected the first time, everybody was crying the next day. And I was like, yeah, welcome to our world. Because when Reagan got elected, any Republican got elected, it directly hurt Native American people. We felt it right at our front door. So it isn't so much about, it, it's more about not looking inward, but looking outward and look and not being selfish. If, if that, if there's a way to say that without trying to be, you know, not, it's not all about you. You're, you're part of this bigger universe, you know, step up and do your part. That's what I say. Thank you. Joni? Okay, so here's a question from the town hall audience, I believe. Tell me how people camping in parks surrounded by trash, human waste, often um, drug syringes, how is it humane? The failure here is not developing alternatives and making parks unwelcoming for other citizens is not helpful. It's not directed to uh, anybody specific, but I'd like to hear from both of you on that. Um, I'll, I'll start because I think Bruce mentioned some of it. It's not humane. It's not humane for anyone to live unsheltered in a park under a bridge, as Bruce was saying earlier. It's it's not okay, and no one has ever said that. But this is the problem with people when they look at government. We don't get a magic wand where we say, oh, we're going to build 2,000 units of housing next week. It doesn't work like that. So what we're seeing now because of the pandemic, because people are losing their jobs, because of mental health, all of these issues that we all know to be true, we can't get people quick enough into housing. And it's not humane. But at some point, there are hard choices. And we as a government, with the tools that we have as government, you know, we're not dictators, we're not magicians, we're not cheerleaders to try to fix it. And we are trying to fix it in the budget. We are dealing with a budget of a $340 million deficit right now. And so what we're trying to do is shift those resources to build housing stock, to get people sheltered, get them in, buy motels, rent hotel rooms. We're trying. I know people are not happy about that, but no one, and I know Bruce can back me on this, nobody here in government believes it's humane for anyone to live outside. You know the problem with the discussion, I had a, I was at the table one time and a young man had gotten evicted from his homeless area under a bridge or in a park and he's with his girlfriend. And I said, you know, we're putting all of this advocacy into this person's right to live under a bridge. This person's right to live 
outside in the cold, wet park. Well, that's sort of a low bar. I would rather take all of the energy and think about how do I get this person in some kind of path of sustainability, not just warm, not just housed, but how they can actually make a living, learn a trade, get educated. It seems to me that we spend all of this anger on fighting for someone's rights to live in inhumane conditions. That's the big contradiction in this. And, and, and so I've never been supportive of that because again, it's not sustainable um, to have someone live in a park. There's too many unhealthy issues associated with that. And that's, I think I agree with the questioner's position, but that's where I come out on that. So I'm gonna read one, one more question. Um, and you're not going to have that much time to answer it, but I'm just going to tell you this is something that our audience is uh, is feeling or thinking. This one says, I just moved here from the most progressive city in America, San Francisco. I've never seen this level of discord between a city council and a mayor. I've also never seen such self-aggrandizing city council members that don't appear to inform their decision-making based on, you're laughing, on data or the wishes of constituents. And then it says, I'm kind of bitching, but how does this get reconciled? Go ahead. <laughs> you saw me smirking. So I gotta remember I'm on, I'm being watched. I gotta be careful what I say. You know, I don't, you're always gonna have tension with the executive and the legislative, that's gonna happen. Um, you're always gonna have a difference of opinion, but there's a lot of truth to this person's observation um, that right now there is a lot of tension, but I believe it's heightened again because we're in this pandemic fueled recession and social unrest. That's what's happening here. And you're right, every district has elected their own representative, but they all work for the good of Seattle. Um, I, don't, I don't know, I, I mean, look at what's happening in Washington, DC. Look at the level of discord there what's going on with the Republicans and the Democrats. So it isn't just Seattle. I mean, it's it's everywhere. Um, I'm not excusing it, but I, I want to get back to, you know, and I, you know what? I don't know if it's going to be any better in the future. I'm hoping that I'm gonna, I'm going to do my part to look at humanity, to have the empathy and grace to move forward. Um, but yeah, there is that, and I don't I don't know what to tell you. I don't I don't know who. I mean, it's interesting when people. I see the world differently because I'm kind of sitting in it. So I'm always asking my husband, do people see what people say and do, or am I just crazy? Um, yeah, there is a lot of speechifying. There's there's a lot of polarization. Um, people have a platform. They have a right to have those, to say those things. Um, I'm not one that talks a lot because I was raised to speak when I have something to say. Um, I'm also very pragmatic. Um, I don't like it when people project on me that just because I'm Native American, Latina, or a woman that somehow I'm supposed to be this far left progressive and vote yes on everything that's sometimes just insane. So I can understand where an outsider would come here and look at that and see that. But I, in defense of my great city, our great city, um, we are a progressive city. We have done phenomenal things and we'll continue to do great things. And I have great hope that we're going to move forward together. Bruce? You know, I, because my awareness knows my style, I, I couldn't, I, I would have to agree with the, the questioner to some extent. Council members are attacked daily, just daily. 
So I suppose that there's a need for them to justify both who they are and what their credentials are and yada, yada. And with that comes the rhetoric that follows the long speeches, I suppose. I, I have very little tolerance for that. I used to always tell Councilmember Morris, I'd say, show some leadership. Leadership means saying less. I would say that in our city hall, while we may have some wacky speeches made, there's no corruption in that sense. I've been around the city councils where there's been overt corruption um, of the kinds of idiocy. So I, I don't want to say it's, it's 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 so bad that you know I think we have a fairly high IQ, but certainly there are some style differences there, and less is more often, and sometimes we don't get less. <laughs> Or as my husband always says to me, give me the short version. Give me the short version. And the data, I think the other questioner is talking about, okay, you're on your high horse on this. What is the data suggestion? I just read a piece about, I think, customer awareness, one of the ordinances you guys are considering about uh, changing some affirmative de defenses for misdemeanors. Um, you know, when George Floyd was murdered, we understood why people were banning uh, both kneeling on necks and, and chokeholds. If you're making policies, give us five, six, ten examples as to why you're changing the law. Give us the data why it needs to be changed. And if you just provide that, people, you could bring people along. But some of that's just not occurring. Well, we'd like to thank uh, Joni and I. Would like to thank uh, both the council president, uh, former council president uh, Bruce Harrell, and also council member Deborah Wires for appearing tonight. We'd also like to thank Town Hall for making this possible for us. And also, we'd like to remind you, so we, as I said, we have three of these every year. Uh, our next one will probably be in February, and the title may change depending upon what happens on November 3rd. But the title that we currently have um, <laughs> planning on putting on is Restoring Civility in a Post-Trump World. We're hoping that's going to be the case. But thank you very much for uh for everybody for uh, tuning in and uh, have a good night. The Seattle University Institute of Public Service and Town Hall Seattle presented this conversation with Seattle City Council member Deborah Juarez and former council president Bruce Harrell on October 29th. Multimedia journalist Joni Balter and Seattle U professor Larry Hubble served as moderators. You'll find the full event and other great Seattle area talks on our website, kuw.org. Just click on the podcast tab. While you are there, subscribe to our podcast, follow us on social media, share your comments. We appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Tune in again soon.